Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to How Magicians Think, Magic Behind Bars. You have a prepaid call from an inmate at State Prison. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua Jay, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. We tend to think of magic in terms of, did it amaze us? Did it fool us? How does it work? But we can now think about magic in new terms, which are these. Magic as rehabilitation. I'm going to share with you a couple of people whose lives were transformed and saved, and I'm not being dramatic here, truly saved by magic. These are people who discovered magic in the unlikeliest place, prison, and it changed the trajectory of their life. In August of 2009, I received a letter that read, Dear Joshua J., my name is Mark Andaman, and I'm currently serving a 16-year prison sentence for armed robbery. By the way, I'm a magician. That's how the letter began. It's the strangest letter I've ever received. And the letter went on to tell stories that were, to me, as unbelievable as magic tricks. These are people who performed for gang leaders, got heckled by very violent criminals, failed escape attempts, getting shaken down in prison cells because they wouldn't explain to the guards how they did their tricks. And the letters kept coming. Over the years, I've taught magic to more than 15 incarcerated people. And I always start with the same rule. I always tell them, look, I am happy to teach you magic, but I have one rule. I'd like you to describe how we got to now. Why are you in here? And I don't care if they tell me that they're innocent or they're guilty. I don't care if their crime is violent or nonviolent. I just want to hear their life story. I want to hear why they are where they are so that we can get everything out in the open and have an open dialogue. And I admit, I have this morbid curiosity. It's so far removed from the life that I live, this life of living in a prison cell, that I want to know about their lives and what drew them to magic. So once that part is out of the way, we are off and running, and I am teaching these people magic. And we always start with the same thing. We start 
by setting a goal. Now, for beginners, that goal is to learn their first trick, and that's going to involve practicing the moves, writing a script, putting it all together. If they're a little more advanced, their first goal is to put together a holiday show. Because you see, as I learned from doing this for now more than a decade, prisons allow performers to do things on Christmas that they can't do any other day of the year. So that's the one day a year that these incarcerated people are allowed in front of their fellow inmates to perform. So we put together a show. We talk about openers and closers and middle pieces. We talk about comedy and magic. We talk about their personal narrative and what they want to tell. We have to build the props and construct the show and build posters to post all around the prison so that people come to the show. It's a whole process. But what I come back to again and again is this sort of trite thing, and I hope it's not trite the way you hear it, and that is that I am getting as much or more out of this than I think the incarcerated students that I teach. I mean that sincerely. It really is important to me. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So in this episode, I have two guests from the prison system. One is a former student who is now out in the real world. And get this, this brings me so much joy. This person is now a professional magician. They learn magic on the inside, and now it's how they make their living. It's how they contribute to society and pass it all around. The other person is an equally inspiring individual. This is somebody who is still on the inside and is not scheduled to ever get parole. It's a sentence without parole. And yet, on the inside, this person has dedicated his life to magic, to spreading magic around his prison for his inmates, for the guards, and dedicated himself to becoming an expert magician. He is a wildly creative performer, and he is going to be talking to us from the phone inside the prison system. Let's jump in. And then I made some bad choices and ended up getting incarcerated. Unfortunately, I was supposed to only do four years, and due to a error in the paperwork on the court side or the prison side, who knows, they were under the impression that I was supposed to do a lot longer. I ended up doing 14 years in total. David Garza is one of my favorite students. He wrote to me when he was just starting out in magic and I taught him tricks for almost a decade. And then he got out. And he made me so proud that when he got out of prison, he decided to make magic his life. Of all the things I've accomplished in my life, this is perhaps the thing that I'm most proud of. In his book, Humankind, author Brad Aronson poses an interesting question, and it's this. Have you ever changed someone's life? That's a really serious question, and it's a bit trite, but think about it. Have you ever changed somebody's life? You can volunteer at a soup kitchen and help someone, or donate clothes, or a winter coat, or volunteer at a school. But have you ever really changed someone's life? Have you ever affected somebody's life path and the trajectory of how their life will carry out? I hadn't, at least I didn't think I had, until I started teaching incarcerated people. And it's an incredibly powerful feeling to know that what you're doing is changing somebody's life for the better. And that's when I say that teaching these people has given me more, or at least as much as it's giving them. David Garza is an incredible person, and his life is full of challenges still. It's hard to make a living when you're an incarcerated person. It's hard to begin a performing career so late in life. But I am struck by his attitude and his approach and the seriousness with which 
he takes on magic, his chosen craft. Let's talk with David Garza. David, you served 14 years in total incarcerated. And now that you're out, you are using your rather unusual skill that you perfected inside prison. And we work together on this. And you are now a professional magician. What does that feel like? Did you ever imagine that that would be your life path? No, I could have never imagined it in a million years. I was raised in a family that was just, you go, you know, be a trade training or college or something, and you get a job and you work for someone else, and then you just do that for the rest of your life and hopefully have enough to retire uh, at the end of life. I had learned through my communication with you, the business of being a magician, and I thought for the first time, this is something that I could do. As felons, it's a little more difficult you know, to get normal jobs and things like that and pass background checks. So there are hurdles to overcome. And this is the best, you know, as they say, if you do something you love, you never work a day in your life. And I always thought, oh, they're just saying that because it's cliche to say and it's motivational, but it's true. And this is what I'm living. What made you want to really pursue magic when you were incarcerated and at the time had a huge block of time in front of you that you knew you wouldn't be? performing for typical audiences, and yet still you reached out to me and you wanted to learn magic. Why is that? Well, I had always had magic as an interest, as a hobby growing up. And while I was incarcerated, I met a gentleman that was also incarcerated that had uh, knowledge of professional card magic. He was doing things that I just blew my mind. And with my interest in magic, uh, you know, at the time, I didn't think that it would end up being a part of my future or anything other than something that I could do while I was incarcerated. So I bothered him and bothered him until he decided to uh, sit down and give me lessons and teach me the stuff that he knew that I didn't know. So it was really mostly at the time, which just started uh, as something to pass the time because we're always looking for something to pass time with. You described in your letters to me your fear of actual violence, not just from inmates, but even from prison guards, if you didn't reveal your tricks, if you didn't adhere to their whims of where you could perform and how and when. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of fear and and the environment you were learning magic in? Yeah. Like one guy, after I had done some tricks and his friends were laughing, not at him, but just because of the humor of the situation and the amazement of the trick, He felt insulted, so he had walked around the other side of the yard and went and grabbed a baseball bat and was going to catch me on the other side of the track with intention to attack me. Fortunately, some other friends of mine that happened to be in a biker gang, they escorted me back to my housing unit and said, you know, we'll take care of it, but, you know, just stay here for 20 minutes or so, and then you come back out on the yard. So uh, criminals in general are very selfish by nature. They want what they want when they want it and will go to great lengths to get those things, be they legal or illegal or violent. So part of my subconscious motivation, I would suppose, in learning magic was that if I could entertain them and make them happy, then in general, they would be less likely to harm me in some way. But what I did found is that a lot of them didn't like being fooled. They felt that I was purposely trying to make them look stupid in front of others and disrespect them and that type of thing. I had to be careful in how I approached the reveal because if they came across that way, then they were very likely to to want to beat me up or, or to do something to me. In some ways, you could say that performing on the inside for prison inmates 
prepared you for a much easier audience on the outside. It was always us against them, you know, the, the spectator against the performer. But I expected that to be the way it always was. So uh, when I got released, I started performing for the people on the outside. I was amazed at how that rarely happens. For me, the key to successful engagement in the strolling close-up situation is to create an atmosphere where the people put aside all their skepticism and then are willing to experience the wonder of magic. I had to learn how to do that to some of the hardest people in the world. And so those skills transferred very nicely into the real world. You were the first person really that I, I started corresponding with and we've been corresponding now for more than a decade, both when you were on the inside then when you got out <laughs> then when you had this silly parole violation and had to go back in. And what strikes me now that I've been corresponding and teaching several magicians on the inside who are incarcerated is that they are all trying to be defined by something other than their worst moment, their worst decision, their crime. Yeah. And they are so much more than their crime. And they're paying for their crime in the way that you serve time as well. Can you talk a little bit about redemption and what magic offers you? So in a general sense, it's very humbling and remorseful to know that my choices harmed other people, you know, hurt my family. You know, if I can give something back to the community and as I've grown my business and I'm able to work with different causes, you know, especially adults, we need more wonder, we need more amazement, we need more joy. And to be able to add that to someone's life, particularly living in a situation where it was an absence of all joy and wonderment and amazement, it is something that I can kind of go and say, you know, while I can't undo anything of the past, I can add a little bit to better the future. The person we're next going to talk to is Rafael Torre. And as you'll hear in our conversation, his situation is bleaker than David Garza. Because whereas David has been able to get out of prison and make life magic in real life and have a career with magic, Rafael may never get out. Then again, when I asked him about this, he's hopeful, even adamant, that one day he'll be free again. Listen to my conversation with Rafael. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. In 2001, I was a person of interest in a murder for hire. And they convicted me and gave me life without the possibility of parole. I've been stuck in here ever since. And is the saying those words, is that still hard or in the ensuing years has not made peace with it, but has it normalized in your head? Well, no, not really because of... And it's, and, I came to jail later than most of these guys. I came in at 38. Most of these guys came in here as kids, as juvenile detention and everything. I came from a good family. A lot of people, they try to say, well, you know, I'm not as guilty. You know, well, one to 4% of the people actually in the prison system are factually innocent. And um, I got no reason to lie. I've been through my appeals process, but I'm one of those percent. Uh, just one of the people that's not guilty of being what I'm in here for. I, wasn't raised in the criminal element, so it was hard for me to get used to. It's an ultra-violent place, full of ultra-violent people with a lot of people got issues, and you got one of two ways to make it. You either let them break you, or you get stronger, and you become stronger than the next guy, including the cops, or you basically try to make, like you said, peace with yourself and try to find something that can keep you going and keep you sane. My thing was magic. And that is... So interesting. And that's sort of where I come in the picture. So paint that yeah. picture for us of how 
magic came into your life and how I entered the picture, and then we'll go from there. So I knew magic before growing up. My dad had showed me a few tricks and some friends. I read a couple of books as a kid. I had an interest in it, and I liked it, but I didn't love it yet. When I came to prison, well, actually, I was in county jail, and one day these guys were playing cards, and I said, hey, man, let me show you a magic trick. And I showed them some magic, and they were flabbergasted. I said, huh, that's kind of weird. Next thing you know, I did a couple more, and then next thing you know, there's 20, 20, 25 people standing around me, including two uh, deputy sheriffs. And they're all laughing and joking and slapping me on the back, and I thought, I think I got something I can do here. You know, everybody, they like work out, or they, or they write, or they read. I knew what I wanted to do. And I told my family, you know, hey, give me a subscription to Genie Magazine and to Magic Magazine. And there was this guy in there who I liked his call the best. His name was Joshua J. And I really liked to talk about tricks all of it. I read them all, and I really got into it. And one day, he said, if you ever want to talk about magic, email me. And, of course, we didn't have access to email, so I wrote my brother a letter. And I said, hey, man, email this guy. Like, two weeks later, I got a letter from him. And basically, we started a friendship, and you helped me, and my magic started. You recommended books. You not only recommended books, you sent me books. And I just started just diving into it. Like, my every free moment I had in here, I was devoted to magic. And You know, obviously, it's, it's not an ideal situation. But what you have that most other magicians don't is time. And because you yeah. have time, I knew that you had the potential, if you were willing to work hard, to be great. And I knew from your other interest of mixed martial arts and the things that you did and the way you described your workout regime, that you had the quality that you would put in the time to learn. And so that's what's been so yeah. gratifying is watching you go from what I would call a hobbyist level magician to a really great practitioner. Talk to us a little oh, bit about you. what it's like to perform on the inside because you're not performing for people who are necessarily interested in magic or wanting to be entertained they're not polite there's no incentive to be cordial to you what's that like well you're actually mistaken about one part because when i first came to prison a lot of guys they look at magic like it's the big fluffy shirt the goofy magician back from the 1970s and 1960s but when i first came to prison when i started doing magic this was, I don't like magic. I don't like card tricks. I'll guarantee you do if I show you. Almost 90% of the guys would say they didn't like it. But then when they started watching it, they loved it. Later on, as I started doing more and more magic around people, very rare do I go to dance with somebody that says, hey, hey, Raphael, show me something. Show us something. Some new guy will show, hey, man, show, show my friend this magic. Show some magic. I do a Christmas show every year that you've helped me with. I've got people asking me now. It's July. And they're asking, are you going to do a show this year? It's become a big thing in the prison. And that's one of the things that, that we did together and that now I'm writing yeah. some other incarcerated magicians. And, and I think it's an amazing thing that you and I figured out together that putting together a Christmas show is a great project to look forward to because it is the one time a year which you can actually gather people together. The last Christmas one I did was 2019 because the pandemic made it where they wouldn't let me do it in the building. They absolutely made it. But I've already had them ask me to do it for this Christmas. So I'm getting ready for this year. You've really shown a creativity. You've really customized your tricks to your own personality, your own situation, the themes you want to talk about. Tell us about, like, for example, your cups and balls. Oh, the cups and balls routine I do, it's a six-minute, ten-second routine. And I start with a single cup, and I have a whole script that starts by arguably the oldest trick of magic is the world-famous cups and balls. In fact, 
in the year 1462, there was an artist named Hermione Bosch that had the painting called The Conjurer, showing what you should do with cups of balls and magic on the streets of London. You know, even older than that, there are Egyptian hieroglyphs date back a thousand years, showing magicians from that era doing cups and balls for the pharaohs. Now, because the cups and balls has been around so long, everybody pretty much understands what's going on. The magician uses words called patter, multiple cups, multiple balls, and other small objects, all to distract you as he, as he secretly loads small objects underneath the cup. That's why today I thought I'd do something different. I thought I'd start with one cup and one little blue ball. And I hold up the cup and I hold the ball. And I start changing the color of the balls underneath the cup. So I keep doing it. And it's all a story about being a magician in prison and how, you know, I wish I could give some my cellies asked me if I could have real magic powers. Well, they asked me if I could have any real power. So I said mine would be that I could travel through solid objects like steel doors, concrete walls, and electric fences. It always gets a laugh. And then I start talking about how, you know, like the ball penetrates the cup and I start showing that. And then later on, I... It ends up with having a three-load with just like an apple, an orange, and, a, and an onion. And at the very end of the show, I'll push all the cups aside and pretend like the cups and balls is over. And I'll do, uh, you know the uh, lifesaver retrieval that Dan Sperry does in his yeah. show? I do the same thing. But mine's with some patter, and then at the end I do it with music. That always, it's a, people flip smooth out. They just, they freak out on that. At the very end, I'll say, oh, by the way, thanks for coming to my show. As much as I'd like to have real magic powers, I can. And I'm spreading the cups out as I'm saying this. I flip over a cup and it's empty. As much as I'd like to be able to take some of you guys through these walls and let your fences, I can't do that either. What I can do is be a magician. A magician's number one goal in life is to inspire wonder. And I hope I've done that for you today. By the way, Merry Christmas. I lift the final cup and there's a little tiny sandwich sign that says Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Love it. It's really inspiring. A person in your shoes who knows that they may not ever get out of prison doesn't have much motivation to do something constructive with their time. And here you've given yourself this expertise, this passion that you didn't have before. It isn't easy to learn and practice magic on the inside. Tell everybody about how you have to apportion your time to practice. I know that when I send you books, they totally cut the covers off because they can cover yeah. you know, all of that stuff. You're not allowed to use most props like coins and things. The practice thing is the hardest thing because before I was in a cell, now I'm in a dorm. And the dorm is like, I, I go to work in the morning at, at 6 o'clock, so I get up at 4.30, and I practice from 5 o'clock till 6 o'clock every morning for an hour. But it's pitch black, and, and I have just my little light on my box, but I'm by myself. That's the time I can practice by myself. I put my headphones on, and I've noticed that lately I've been doing a lot of my routines to music. I have patter usually for the beginning part of it, but then I'll start putting them to music. And I had that music in my ear playing so I could do silent acts to music. You've told me stories of hostile spectators. You've heard about comedians getting, you know, in fistfights with their audience. Imagine in prison, you know, where people have issues. I've had people be drunk in my show, but like the show I did in 2019, final night that I did it, there was over 200 people and 10 cops. The cops came from different yards to watch it. To me, that's a huge crowd doing magic. I don't have big apparatus to do things. My stuff's all close-up magic. I have to be yelling so they can all hear me, and I've actually had people be drunk and try to get right up close to the table. And I've always made the point that I don't berate people or try to make them feel bad, but the audience usually turns on them because they want to see the magic. I've had guys almost want to beat somebody up, and I thought, no, 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 he just wants to be part of the show. And I'll grab that guy, and I'm like, come here, man, you can help me. You're a pretty smart guy. You can help me here. And I'll have him take a card for me, just make him part of the show. He just wants to get some attention. Most of the time, it's just bad. They just want some attention. Do you ever have issues with the guards? Yeah. When I was in my last prison, I, I got a book. It was one of the ones you sent me, I think. Okay. It was about mentalism and hypnotism. And 
we had to get the covers cut off. This big, gigantic copy. He's a big old white boy with tattoos. Just a hard ass, and he knows it. Well, if he's my my <laughs> my book title, Magic and Hypnotism, and he says he actually says hypnotism. What do you want to do? Hypnotize your celly so you can have anal intercourse, but not in such a pleasant way. Right. And uh, without blinking, I just well, yeah, those naked pictures your wife keeps sending me just need cut no more. And I realized as soon as I said it, that was a big mistake, and I thought that seal was going to come over the counter at me. But luckily, the sergeant and all the other cops thought that was freaking hilarious, so they said, give him those books, he earned it. And they, they gave me the books, but yeah, some of them do that. They kind of make fun of the magic, and some of them, until they see you do it. When I wrote my book, you talking, I've had four CEOs just from this yard get the book and have me sign it for them. Wow. I mean, they wanted to have me sign it, and they loved it. One of them actually told me the words, I look at you totally different now. He goes, dude, if I was on the streets, I'd want to be your friend. This one cop told me. And I was kind of like touched. I was like, whoa, really? Your book has touched the lives of so many people outside of the prison system. And I think given them inspiration, because the takeaway that I got from years now of corresponding with you and getting to know you and becoming your friend is that what you are trying to do is bigger than yourself. You have expressed in, in letters so many times that this isn't about passing the time for you. This is about making people feel like they aren't in this really rough environment that they find themselves. Yeah. Well, people always ask me, if you got out, what would you want to do? I go, well, one of the things I'd want to do is like once a week, I'd like to go to St. Jude's or go to a veteran's home or go to a nursing home and just do magic for the people. Because I see what it does to the people in here. These hardened criminals, straight murdering fools, you know, hardcore robbers and, and violent offenders, they laugh like little school kids when they watch me do magic. They just never see magic up close. And I know what magic does to you when it's right under your eyes, when it's right, right in front of you. This is the greatest thing in the world, you know? It's just, you see that wonder in their eyes, and it's just there's nothing better than that for me. Nothing. I love it. You've heard this rather unusual story of mentoring magicians who are living in incarceration. You've heard from an incarcerated magician. You've heard from a formerly incarcerated magician who's made his life all about magic. And through it all, I hope you've learned that magic has this transformative power to change lives, no matter what the circumstance is. That's it for this episode of How Magicians Think. In the next episode, magic in the Holocaust. Oh my gosh, you guys, I am so excited about this episode. Werner Reich is 94 years old. He is a Holocaust survivor. And while he was interned at Auschwitz, at Auschwitz, one of his bunkmates did a card trick for him and showed him how it was done. And this changed the trajectory of his life. Forget what you think you know about the Holocaust and about magic. You have never heard a story like this before. And it's all coming up in the next episode of How Magicians Think. See you there. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J. And this is How Magicians Think. How Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc. 
Executive produced by Joshua J., Jared Gustat, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J., audio up in-house production by Jordana Glick-Fransheim and Nate Glassman-Hughes. Edited by Kerry Caulfield-Eric. Sound design and mix by Kerry Caulfield-Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from Audio Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.